Good afternoon and welcome, uh, especially welcome to the many guests who are worshiping with us today. Uh, we hope that you will feel welcomed and that you will also uh, be edified through your time with us. We also welcome those who are joining us on the live feed, any shut-ins or uh, whoever may be joining us. Hope you are also blessed by our worship today. Um, in connection with Lord's Supper today, we, which we plan to celebrate this service, we welcome the following guests to partake with us. Uh, Tanisha Holtfleur, Mitch Vanderwood, Jacob Brokema, Greg and Veronica DeHaas, Cassie and Evan Van Staldoinen, Rob Vanderland, and John and Betty Siebinga. Uh, we welcome Pastor Tim to the pulpit to lead us in worship. Good afternoon. What a privilege and a joy to gather together, to worship our God together, uh, to hear the gospel and to taste and see the goodness of our God in Lord's Supper as well. Uh, to begin, please stand if you're able to, and we'll hear our call to worship. Our call to worship for today comes from uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Holy Supper that we'll celebrate today, it's been instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as our call to worship, listen to the words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we come together to worship our God, we come humbly confessing our dependence. As a congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And God greets us with his blessing from Scripture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's sing together uh, Psalm 24, stanza 4 to begin. this afternoon, uh, in order to come before our God and worship him properly, and especially to eat and drink the Lord's Supper properly, we all ought to examine our hearts and see if we truly accept our need for God's grace. And so let's return to the form for Lord's Supper, to the 
self-examination portion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul continues, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. In order that we may celebrate this holy supper of the Lord to our comfort, we must first rightly examine ourselves. Further, we must use it as Christ intended it, namely, to his remembrance. True self-examination consists of the following three parts. First, let each and every one of us consider uh, his or her sins and accursedness, so that he detesting himself may humble himself before God. For the wrath of God against our sin is so great that he could not leave it unpunished, but has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by the bitter and shameful death on the cross. Second, let each of us search our heart, whether we also believe the sure promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is freely given him as his own, as if he himself had fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone examine his conscience to see whether it is his sincere desire to show true thankfulness to God with his entire life, and laying aside all enmity, hatred, and envy, to live with his neighbor in true love and unity. God will certainly receive in grace all who are thus minded, and count them worthy to partake of the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. But those who do not feel this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. Our Lord has given us the Ten Commandments, and he did it in order to examine our lives and expose our sins and guide our walk with thankfulness as well. And we find a paraphrase of the Ten Commandments in the next part of our Lord's Supper form. And this morning I'd like to read that paraphrase with you where we would usually read uh, God's law in full. So therefore, according to the command of Christ and of the Apostle Paul, we admonish those who know themselves to be guilty of the following offensive sins to abstain from the table of the Lord. And we declare to them that if they don't repent, they have no part in the kingdom of Christ. First, all who refuse to trust in the Lord alone, or who serve him in their own manner. All who abuse the name of the Lord by cursing or in any other way. All who do not diligently attend the worship services and who despise the proclamation of God's word or the sanctity of the sacraments. All who are disobedient to their parents or to others in authority over them. All who violate human life or cherish hatred against their neighbor and refuse to be reconciled to him. All who, either within or outside of holy wedlock, do not keep their bodies pure. All who, by stealing, greed, or extravagance, lead a worldly life. All liars, backbiters, and slanderers. Briefly, all, either who, in word or in conduct, show themselves to be unbelieving by leading an offensive life. While they persist in their sins, they shall not take of this food which Christ has ordained only for his believers. Otherwise, their judgment and condemnation will be the heavier. But all of this, beloved brothers and sisters is not meant to discourage broken and contrite hearts, as if only those who are without sin may come to the table of the Lord. For we do not come to this supper 
to declare that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. On the contrary, we seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we acknowledge that we are completely dead in ourselves. We also are aware of our many sins and shortcomings. We do not have perfect faith. We don't serve God with such zeal as he requires. Daily, we have to contend with the weakness of our faith and with the evil desires of our flesh. Yet, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we are heartily sorry for these shortcomings and desire to fight against our unbelief and live according to all the commandments of God. Therefore, we may be fully assured that no sin or weakness which remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God in grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Having examined ourselves, now let's sing uh, to God using the words of Psalm 24, stanza 2, about what it takes for someone to truly stand before our holy God. and holy God in a word of prayer. Wonderful, marvelous, holy God and faithful Father. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We stand amazed just at who you are. We know that you are a God who, unlike us, is perfectly pure. You are perfect and you're worthy of all adoration and all praise. We're attracted to your beautiful nature, your, your goodness and your holiness, but also your kindness and your compassion. Thank you that as we just heard, by the precious blood of your Son, you have purified us. And thank you that you work by your word and your spirit to make us more and more holy as you are holy. Although we know, as contrite sinners, that in spite of our weakness and our sin, you have already declared us holy once and for all in Christ. As we open your word together now, we ask that you'll work inside of us, that you'll renovate our hearts and our minds and all of our lives, that you'll comb through each minute of each of our days, comb through our whole heart and soul and mind, and that you'll throw out whatever is unsuitable for a precious child of yours bought by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and that you'll add into our lives whatever is fitting for a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By your word, as we open it now, we ask that you'll teach us, you'll rebuke us, you'll correct us, and you'll train us in righteousness so that we might believe it. And by believing it, we might become your faithful servants, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
It's in Jesus' name alone that we come before you, and it's in his name alone that we pray. Amen. So as you might know, for a couple of weeks now, we've looked at the theme of sojourning. Uh, We've been reminded from a couple of scripture passages uh, that this earth that we live in, it's not our final destination, it's not our permanent home, but it's a place that we're just staying for a little while. Uh, We're serving God here, we're working with God and for God, but all the time we're looking ahead to the city, to the country that is to come. We're looking forward to God fulfilling his promise to bring us to our final home once and for all. And now as we're about to turn to our text for this afternoon, uh, we'll see a text that takes a different approach to the theme of sojourning. It's not talking about sojourning anymore on this world, like we've been hearing about. Uh, But instead, our text is asking a big question. It's asking, how can we sojourn, spend some time with God in his presence instead? And so as we go through the, the sermon, I encourage you to keep your Bible open. And we'll meditate on this picture of who can sojourn, who can stay with God himself in his presence. Let's read together Psalm 15 as our text. And then we'll sing those words together as well. Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, And does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's sing Psalm 15 together.
as mentioned, Psalm 15 is our text, so there's no need to read it again. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you could tell me what is the best part of a vacation? What's the best part of taking a holiday? I think people might have different answers to that question. For some people, especially people who really dislike the cold, it might be the sun. When you go somewhere really warm and beautiful, especially during cold winter months. For some people, I think they would tell you the food. I know some people uh, who I knew while I was growing up, and they would plan where they would go on vacation based based almost exclusively on what food they could get wherever they were going. That's what was important to them. Or maybe for some people, the best part of vacation is just relaxation. Being totally stress-free for a little while. Getting a break. But I wonder if you would agree with me that what might be the most important part of vacation is actually the company. It's who you spend it with. I can think of some little vacations and holidays that I've been on in my life where honestly... Everything was kind of a train wreck. The weather ended up being really bad. We got badly lost. Things just didn't go how we had hoped they were. And yet, when I'm reminded of those days and I think back on them, they were pretty great. That's not because everything went according to plan. It didn't. But just because of the people that I spent the time with. It ended up being a beautiful thing. Likewise, recently, I was speaking with a friend, and he got to go to, uh, on a dream trip to Europe. And he said that the place that he stayed, it was just amazing. He showed me pictures. It was beautiful and historic. Uh, The architecture was wonderful. Uh, He also showed me a lot of pictures of the food that he got while he was there. He, He ate like a king. It was beautiful. But he mentioned that when the time finally came for him to head back home, he was not really sad about it. He was pretty happy to leave. And he mentioned that the reason why was because the company wasn't very good. The people he spent time with, he found them kind of off-putting. They were uh, uh, elitist and and kind of rude. And in some ways, it made it this beautiful place to stay, even a little bit unpleasant to hang around in. And in our passage today, this is relevant, because David is talking about what it's like to go and stay somewhere for a while. And specifically, he's talking about what it's like to go and stay with God in His presence. And his focus is actually on the people who are there, in front of God. His question is, to begin our text, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who is it that lives with God? So today we'll think about staying with God. And we'll go through the text in three parts, or in three ways. First we'll see the portrait, the picture that David paints of those who can stay with God. Secondly, we'll see the problem about those who can stay with God. And then thirdly, the promise of those who can stay with God. So first of all, the portrait that David paints. We can imagine, I think, what it would be like to stay in Europe with amazing food and amazing architecture and history, but with some unpleasant people and kind of want to get out of there. We can also imagine, I think, going on a cheap vacation where things don't go well, but the company is great. But what we should really try and picture right now is what it would be like to live right here. Try and glance over the text and see what would it be like to live in God's presence 
with these kind of people that David describes. Here we see the kind of people that are are welcomed and flourishing in God's own presence. And here we get a real picture uh, of paradise, uh, of heaven. As many of you know, uh, me and my family, we didn't move here that long ago. And British Columbia, it's even more beautiful than people say. It's It's a wonderful place with so many places to go, so much to see. And as me and my family, we look up different pictures and descriptions uh, of different places. Uh, sometimes when we see some pictures or videos or we just read a description, we think, I need to go there. Uh, I, I need to go and see that place for myself. I, I need to experience that. That sounds so beautiful. And I submit to you that that's the feeling you should have as we read this psalm. This is so beautiful. This sounds amazing. We, we need to be there. This is a picture of paradise, of heaven itself of staying with God's people, people worthy of God, in God's own presence. If you glance over our text, compare this with where we actually live, this place we actually call home, this world. Compare these people with the people uh, around us, with our, even ourselves. Does this sound like a place that you need to experience, a place that you need to go, that you need to see for yourself? Psalm 15 describes those flourishing in God's presence as, first of all, people who walk blamelessly and do what is right. So imagine this place David is describing for us. All of the people are blameless. All of the things they do, their walk, every step that they take, it's faultless and it's right. The kind of people, you just meet them, you spend some time with them, and you want to stay with them. They just always know what to say, always know what to do. David actually zeroes in on their words especially. And he says with their words, they they speak the truth. And I know that might not sound that special, but really if you think about it for a second and compare it with our world, that is special, isn't it? Billy Joel, you might know his song. He was right when he sang, Honesty is such a lonely world. Honesty is seldom ever heard. Think about all the lies around us all the time. Politicians, they can often lie. They're famous for it to try and get our trust. Companies can lie about their products, how good they are, how much we need them to be happy or fulfilled. Often we can be nervous and not know what to think or what people think of us. Because sometimes even our friends and our family, they, they bend the truth, either for their sake or maybe they just do it for our sake times it can feel like we don't know where we can go to to find the truth. Well, David says here, in God's presence, we have it. People who always speak the truth, and you can bet they speak it in love. They speak it truly to your benefit. And notice what they say, or what David says. They don't just speak the truth with their lips. And one of the most remarkable things that David says in this psalm, he says they speak the truth in their hearts. Can you picture that? Not just the dialogue that they have with you speaking, but their internal dialogue, their thoughts, the deepest thoughts of their heart. Even those are beautiful. Even those are true and perfect. David goes on to say they don't slander. They do no evil against their neighbors, let alone against their friends. In fact, some argue what is meant here is it's not just people who don't slander themselves, don't gossip 
themselves, but the kind of people, that's what David is describing. If you go to this land, there, if someone caught a whiff of slander against you or someone else, they would walk away. They wouldn't even entertain it. These are the kind of people who quench slander and quench gossip. Alistair Begg compares it to uh, a ditch that you dig to prevent a wildfire from spreading. The wildfire of gossip or slander is coming. Well, these people are the ditch that put an end to it. Can you imagine with living in a place where everyone is like that? These people don't think highly of evil or those who practice it. Instead, David says, they think highly only of one type of person. The people who are exalted in this society are the people that God himself thinks highly of. The people who honor and fear the Lord, those are the ones who are respected in that society. Is that like our society, or who's elevated here? Is it the people who honor and fear the Lord? No. So often the very opposite. These people, they're generous. They lend out their money to the poor at their own expense. No, no interest. They never take a bribe for their personal gain. This is the picture of all those who are God's people. And this picture should compel us. It should draw us in. We read this description of this place and think, I got to get here. This is the place I, I need to live. I don't want to be here. I want to be there. And we don't think just that because of the people, but rather because of whose people these are. The reason these people are so attractive is because these people look a lot like our God, don't they? They're beautiful because they look like God himself. And so when we read this, we should say, I want those people's God to be my God. I want to dwell and stay with them. And in truth, this is what we were created to look like. We were made in God's image. As these people described here are in God's image. We're supposed to be generous and truthful and beautiful and blameless as our God is. We're supposed to be living with our God and looking like our God. And so this is what we should want. That's what we need to notice first. But that this is so far from where our world is from. But then that's the question of this psalm. Who can stay with God and be his people? Who can stay with these people as well? Who can stay with them now, but also who can stay with them for all of eternity? Who can enjoy this bliss? Reading this description should first of all compel us. Make it what we long for. This is what life should be like and what we need. But our second point, we see we have a problem. The question here of who can live in the presence of God, who has the right to stay there, it's not just a theoretical question. It's not just a thought experiment. But this is the most fundamental question of your life and of mine. Who can actually live where we were supposed to live? Who can actually live the way we were created to live? Who can actually live and commune with the God we were made to commune with? That's the question. Who can enjoy this? And the answer we should see is a crushing one. In a sense, the answer should crush our spirits. Because many of the people believe the background to this text was temple worship. And so you've got to get your headspace back into when the psalm was written. People would go to temples all the time. They'd try and uh, get an audience with a god or in the favor of that god. And when they would go up to the temple, outside of it, you've got to picture it, there were, a priest, there were priests there. 
And so you walk up and you speak to the priest and you have to ask them, okay, well, what do I have to do to get inside? And usually they give you some answers of, oh, you got to do some ceremonial washings, you got to offer some sacrifices, something like that, and then you're free to come in. But here, this is the answer for Israel's God. You go up to the priest and you ask them, who's allowed to enter? Who can go up to this God and worship him and spend time with him? And his answer isn't something external. It's not just that you've got to wash or offer some sacrifices. The question, who can stay with God, we, we sang it earlier. Psalm 24 echoes the same truth. It's the one whose heart is clean and his hands are blameless. That is who can walk up to this God. The one who is blameless and pure and honest inside and out. Alistair Begg, when he comments on this passage, he said that as he worked and studied through this text, it shook him to his core. He said he kept on getting up from his desk and pacing around his office as he studied line by line the requirements for getting before our holy God. As he studied each, each of these requirements, they, they condemned him and convicted him. And as we read this, we should be compelled, attracted to it, but we should be convicted and crushed too. Because we read these requirements to stay with our holy God, what it means to be like our God, to experience heaven starting now and going on forever. And it starts off with being blameless. Absolutely blameless. Is any one of us left standing after even that requirement? Or after the priest says that, do we all have to turn around and go home? I'm not blameless. Next he says they only do what's right, not just in their words, but in their walk. He says they only speak the truth. Do any of us ever speak the truth 100% of the time? And then he adds on that beautiful clause, speaks the truth in their heart. Do you always speak the truth in your heart? If we could somehow get the technology to project all your thoughts or my thoughts on these screens, would people say that they're right and beautiful and perfect? Would God say they're right and beautiful and perfect? I certainly, after hearing that, I've got to turn around and go home. I can't get to this God. No way. Never. Never. He says they do no evil to their neighbor and no reproach to a friend. That one sounds, for a second, a little bit better. I don't treat my neighbors that badly. I hope I treat my friends pretty well. But we need to realize when we really think about this, it's often our neighbors or really our closest neighbors. It's often our friends, the people we love the most, our family, our wife or husband or kids. Those are the ones we treat worst. We do do evil to our friends and to our neighbors. Next, God, or next David says, In their eyes a vile person is despised but those who fear the Lord are honored. How often do we do it that we dishonor people, maybe even in our church, who fear the Lord, people who Jesus loves deeply. We dishonor them for various reasons. How often do we exalt what is vile and people who do things that God says are vile instead? Next he goes on and mentions honesty and generous, uh, generosity. Uh, people who are true to their word, their yes is always yes, and their no is always no, even when it hurts them. Again, Alistair Begg calls this psalm, as you read over it, 
and considerate. And it, it, it attracts you at first, but then it condemns you because, as Alistair Begg says, it's sort of a spiritual CAT scan. It scans your whole body, your whole life, and you see, I don't stack up at all. It shines a floodlight into your lives, into your souls. And you can see we're not worthy of this God to be his people in his presence. And again, the question here is just who can sojourn in this God's tent? Who can dwell for a time in his temple? It's just who can go in the Lord's presence for a little while? Never mind who can stay with him forever in heaven. This psalm on its own, on our own, it bars us out of God's presence now and forever. And it seems to tell us we'll never be where we want to be. We'll never be where we were created to be. We want to be around people like this, but we aren't people like this. And so we can't get in. But yet, as Paul Tripp says so beautifully on this passage, there's good news here. Because there's only one reason why Psalm 15 crushes us. There's one reason why Psalm 15 knocks us down. It crushes us so that afterwards it can comfort us. Notice that our text is all in the first person uh, singular, or sorry, third person singular masculine. And so the best way to understand this psalm is to realize that the he, he, he mentioned over in this text, uh, of course it doesn't refer to King David who wrote it. it. He would never stack up to this. The he in this text, it doesn't refer to you. It certainly doesn't refer to me. The he in this text refers only to Jesus Christ. When I realized that fact, that truth, I don't know about you, but my guilt, it washed away. I could feel it melt away from me. Finally, there's a way, there's a Savior who was promised, who can bring us back to paradise, into God's presence. This should free us from our guilt and anxiety because it's Jesus Christ alone. He was the one who was blameless, not just in his words, but in his walk. Every step Jesus Christ took, he was blameless. Jesus was the one who spoke the truth to all those around him. And he even spoke, we learn here, he even spoke the truth in his heart. Even the thoughts, the deepest thoughts of his mind and his heart were true and pure and beautiful. Jesus is the one who did no evil to his neighbor. He's the one who is faithful to his friends. And brothers and sisters, we who believe in him, we are his friends. Christ is the one who is unshakably committed to what was right. He couldn't be bribed against the innocent. People bribed others against him, though he was innocent. Jesus wasn't attracted to what God called vile. He honored those who feared the Lord. And he was perfectly generous with all that he had. More than that, try and think back to last week, to our text there on Genesis 15, and you'll see how true it is that Jesus Christ himself was the one who swore to his own hurt, and yet he would not change. Christ is the one who set out from heaven to tabernacle down here, sojourn for a time. God himself took on human flesh as it's compared to a tent. He tabernacled among us because he was committed to saving us and he loved us to the end he made a promise god made a promise to save his people and christ would not turn 
from that promise from the very beginning of the Bible to its end. Even though it cost Christ excruciating pain, unimaginable agony of body and soul we're supposed to remember in Lord's Supper. Nevertheless, Jesus never wavered. He kept his oath to you and to me to save us, to pay for all of our sin, to wash it away, even when it hurt him. Here we have an amazing picture of Christ's righteousness. He is the one who can dwell with God and the one that can bring us to dwell with God as well. That is part of the amazing truth, but the amazing truth actually goes further than that. In this text, we also get a picture not just of Christ's righteousness, but we get a picture of your righteousness and of my righteousness in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that remarkable? Here, brothers and sisters, we have a picture not just of Christ's righteousness, but your righteousness before God and my righteousness before God in Christ. This is how God considers us in him. Because everything that Christ did right, everything he did perfectly, he did for you and me. Every true and perfect word that he spoke, every true and perfect thought of his heart, that has been credited to your account and mine. Even though our sin was credited to his account. Every moment of his suffering and death, he was paying the price for our unrighteousness. And every moment of his obedience he was achieving the righteousness that we could not achieve on our own. He was earning for you and me blessings beyond compare and in an eternity in God's, in Christ's own presence. And he gives it to us by faith. You can read this psalm and you can be amazed at your Savior. And you can read this psalm and you can be amazed at your righteousness in Christ. We just read this together actually in the Lord's Supper form. We are called, before we go to Lord's Supper, to believe in our sin and misery, to believe that we don't stack up on our own. But we are also called to believe that in Christ, we need to believe that we do stack up, and that this righteousness is ours. We read in the form, we have to believe that all of our sins are forgiven us only for the sake of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is now freely given us as our own as if we ourselves had fulfilled all righteousness. And so now when we read these questions, O Lord, who can sojourn in your tent, who can dwell on your holy hill? You can answer and I can answer in Christ. We can answer, I can and I will. And I won't just sojourn there, but I, I won't just stay there for a little while. But I already sojourn with you. I dwell with you now. And I will dwell with this covenant God for all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that's what we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. As we come to Christ, we admit our unworthiness. And we find only grace and forgiveness. And we celebrate being able to dine already with this God. We can go into his presence right now in worship and taking Lord's Supper. And we can look forward to dining with Jesus Christ for all of eternity when we see him face to face. As one commentator says on this text, 
We can ask the question of who really does Psalm 15, Christ or us? Who really lives it out? But that commentator says that our answer should be both, and in that order. Christ lived it out first, and he did it best, and it's credited to our account. He did it for us. But now he also does it through us, by the power of his Holy Spirit, and by his word. He's freed us, and he's equipped us to begin to live in this beautiful way with our God, with God's people here at church, in a compelling way that others see it, and they catch a glimpse of Jesus Christ, starting now and going on for all of eternity. And we can ask our God, we can thank our God to credit Christ's righteousness to our account and then to make us look and live a little bit more like Christ did. Perhaps you've heard the story before of Rosaria Butterfield. I think her story illustrates this perfectly of how the Lord justifies us, makes us righteous, and then by His Spirit begins to make us live out this righteousness as well. Rosaria Butterfield was a university English professor. And she was an outspoken opponent of Christ and of Christianity. And she was also a lesbian. And she believed that Christians hated her for that reason. And to be fair, she mentions that some Christians had given her a pretty good reason to think that all Christians hated her for that reason. But after writing an article against a Christian group in a newspaper, uh, Rosaria Butterfield said she got so many responses that she had large boxes on either side of her desk. One for all the hate mail, and one for all the fan mail. But one letter she got stood out, because it wasn't hate mail, but it, doesn't, it definitely wasn't fan mail either. It challenged her on all of her positions in that article, but it wasn't aggressive, and it wasn't rude, but it was kind and challenging and thought-provoking. So she didn't know where to put it. And so she threw it in the garbage. And then later on, she went and she, she, she dug it out of the recycling, and she put it on her desk, and it sat there for a week. She had no idea what to do. But eventually she answered uh, the letter uh, by agreeing to go over to that person's house for dinner. Apparently in the letter, they had also invited her to come and visit with their family. And so she did. And she said that she met them, and they weren't anything like she ever expected. They were kind, and they were thoughtful, they were compassionate, they were humble, and even they were vulnerable with their own weaknesses. After meeting them, uh, she uh, describes that she met a little bit, in a sense. She met also the God that they served. She could see that in the prayers of the man who had invited her over, that this man uh, prayed in a way that was respectful as to a holy God, but also a way that was personal and intimate. So she met a God holy, but also close. His prayers were thankful and yet penitential. She could tell from his prayers and from how he acted, how he spoke, that his God was holy and firm, yet also kind and full of mercy and compassion, even for the weak and hurting And as she met these people, she wanted to stay with them. And she especially wanted to stay with their God. She wanted his God to become her God eventually. She saw how he acted, how he lived, what his God was like, and she was compelled, as we should be compelled by this psalm. 
Next, she started reading the Bible and then devouring Scripture, she said. She started going to church, and as she listened, she was crushed by God's holiness and His holy standards. But when she went to Jesus Christ, then she was comforted by His grace. And by God's grace, eventually, she was changed. Her life was transformed to look more like this God. In this psalm, too, we, too, are compelled and then crushed and then comforted, and then changed. God helping us, we want to work hard to look like Jesus, like God himself, as we were made to be. And as we've been declared righteous in Christ, may he make us righteous like Christ. Uh, May we today and every day strive to be worthy of staying in his presence. And may we work hard to be blameless in our work as David walked, as David describes. True inside and outside hating evil, honoring uh, what and those who are good, faithful to our neighbors and to our friends, and faithful to our word even when it hurts. And when people come into our lives, maybe they be compelled, compelled by the work that God's doing in us, even though we don't deserve it. But may they, by God's grace, even be compelled to come to our God, our God who is so holy and so far off, but yet a God who is so close, so compassionate, so ready to forgive and transform. May we reflect our God as we were made to do, a staying and dwelling and sojourning in his tent and looking forward to living with him for all time in paradise. Amen. Let's sing together in response the first two stanzas of In Christ Alone.
prepare ourselves uh, to come to the Lord's table, uh, let's continue uh, with our form. We'll pick it up on page 604 of the Book of Praise, uh, the section entitled Remembrance of Christ. Let us now consider for what purpose the Lord has instituted his supper, namely that we should use it in remembrance of him. We are to remember him in the following manner. First of all, let us fully trust that the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by the Father into this world according to the promises made from the beginning to the fathers in the Old Testament and that he assumed our flesh and blood. From the beginning of his incarnation to the end of his life on earth, he bore for us the wrath of God under which we should have perished eternally. By his perfect obedience, he has fulfilled for us or he has for us fulfilled all the righteousness of God's law. We remember in particular that the weight of the wrath of God caused by our sins pressed out of him sweat like drops of blood falling on the ground in the garden of Gethsemane. There he was bound that he might free us from our sins. He suffered countless insults that we might never be put to shame. Though innocent, he was condemned to death, that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. He even let his blessed body be nailed to the cross, that he might cancel the bond which stood against us because of our sins. By all this, he has taken our curse upon himself, so that he might fill us with his blessing. On the cross he humbled himself in body and soul, to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell. Then he called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That we might be accepted by God and nevermore be forsaken by him. Finally, by his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and eternal testament, the covenant of grace, when he said, It is finished. In order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, during his last Passover, instituted the Holy Supper. He gave the bread and the cup to his disciples in remembrance of him. He taught us to understand that as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we are reminded and assured of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. It is a sure pledge that he has given his body and shed his blood for us. Otherwise, we would have suffered eternal death. He nourishes and refreshes our hungry and thirsty souls with his crucified body and shed blood to everlasting life, as certainly as this bread is broken before our eyes and this cup is given to us, and we eat and drink in remembrance of him. From this institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we learn that he directs our faith and trust to his perfect sacrifice, once offered on the cross. It is the only ground for our salvation. Thereby he has become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true food and drink of life eternal. For by his death he has removed the cause of our eternal hunger and misery, which is sin, and obtained for us the life-giving spirit. By this spirit, who dwells in Christ as the head, and in us, his members, we have true communion with him 
and share in all of his riches, life eternal, righteousness, and glory. By the same Spirit, we are also united in true brotherly love as members of one body. For the Apostle Paul says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As one bread is baked out of many grains, and one wine is pressed out of many grapes, so we all, incorporated in Christ by faith, are all together one body. For the sake of Christ, who so exceedingly loved us first, we shall now love one another. And we shall show this to one another, not just in words, but also in deeds. Finally, Christ has commanded us to celebrate the Holy Supper until he comes. We receive at his table a foretaste of the abundant joy which he has promised and look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb when he will drink the wine new with us in the kingdom of his Father. Let us rejoice and give him the glory for the marriage feast of the Lamb is coming. May the almighty heavenly God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ help us in this through his Holy Spirit. Amen. To receive all this, let's now humble ourselves before God in prayer and call upon him in the true faith. Let's pray. Merciful God and Father, we thank you that in this supper we cherish the blessed memory of the bitter death of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you will work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit so we might entrust ourselves more and more to your Son, Jesus Christ. Grant that our contrite hearts may be nourished with his true body and blood and with him who is the only heavenly bread that we may not live in our sins, but Christ in us and we in him. Let us so truly be partakers of the new and everlasting testament, the covenant of grace, that we do not doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, never more imputing to us our sins, but providing us with all things for body and soul as your dear children and heirs. Grant us your grace that we may take up our cross joyfully, denying ourselves, confessing our Savior. Let us in all tribulation await our Lord Jesus Christ, who will come from heaven to change our mortal bodies to be like his glorious body and take us to himself forever. Hear us, Father, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now please stand with me if you're able to, and let's profess our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith as we have it put to music in hymn one.
brothers and sisters, in order that we may now be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread, we must not cling with our hearts to the outward symbols of bread and wine, but lift our hearts on high in heaven, where Christ, our advocate, is at the right hand of his heavenly Father. Let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit, as truly as we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him. I now invite up the elders to distribute the bread. The bread which we break is the communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of every one of our sins. Please distribute the wine. And a uh, reminder uh, that the center ring uh, of each tray uh, has grape juice for those who must abstain from wine.
The cup of blessing for which we give thanks is the communion of the blood of Christ. Take, drink from it, all of you. Remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Please join with me in singing hymn 61, both stanzas. Together praise his holy name. Let everyone say in his heart, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always try, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him 
from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Therefore my heart and mouth shall proclaim the praise of the Lord from now on and forevermore. Amen. Let's come before our Lord in prayer. And in our prayer, we'll remember the Biker and Ten Brinke families who are mourning the passing of Hans Biker unexpectedly this past week. And we'll also pray for Len Hugerdyke. Uh, he's been dealing with some health issues and hasn't been able to uh, be with us here at church in person for a number of weeks. So we'll pray for patience and healing and for a speedy recovery as well. Let's pray together. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that in your boundless mercy, you have given us your only begotten Son as our mediator. We praise you that he is the sacrifice for all of our sin and our food and drink to life eternal. We thank you that you give us a true faith through which we may share in such great benefits with Christ. Through your Son, you have instituted the Holy Supper for the strengthening of our faith. We earnestly and urgently ask you, faithful God and Father, that by your Holy Spirit, this celebration may lead to our daily increase in true faith and in fellowship with Christ, your beloved Son. We especially pray for strength and faith for those in our church who are mourning or those who are suffering. Lord, this week in particular, we remember the Biker and Tembrinke families, uh, mourning the unexpected loss uh, of Hans Biker this past week. Uh, Lord, we are thankful uh, that you remembered Hans Biker as your own. Uh, we're thankful that you called him home to be with you. But Lord, this is so hard. Death is such an unnatural thing uh, for those who remain here. We ask that you will remain close to these families and not forget them, as of course you won't. Please remember these family members still sojourning down here for a little while and help them complete their sojourn with you as they look forward to also uh, coming home. Uh, Lord, we'd also like to bring before you uh, this afternoon our brother Len. Uh, Lord, help him as he's been struggling with his health recently. Uh, we ask that you'll grant wisdom to the, the medical staff who are seeking to identify and, and treat uh, the health issues that are ongoing. Uh, but we also pray uh, for Len, not just for his physical health, but of course, more importantly, for his spiritual health. Uh, grant him uh, physical strength and healing as well, but grant him uh, patience and comfort. Uh, help him to know and to feel and enjoy your deep love and deep care for him. Uh, help him feel and uh, experience that you're still with him as you always will be. Uh, we pray this for Len and for all those who are suffering. Many uh, suffer in silence as well. Uh, but we also pray, Lord, and we thank you that many in our midst are celebrating. Uh, Lord, many, as we can see in our bulletin for this week, many are celebrating birthdays and anniversaries coming up this week and uh, even today. Uh, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness and faithfulness. I uh, thank you for blessing them with uh, another year, another year uh, on this earth or another year together. Lord, we also ask that you'll continue to bless these couples and individuals uh, in this coming year that they might continue to grow in faith and hope and in love and in knowledge of you. That they might have another year of sojourning with you uh, down here uh, before you return and bring us all to our permanent, eternal home. Uh, we ask these things uh, not because we in our own deserve to come even in prayer for a moment into your presence, uh, much less do we deserve forever to dwell with you. But we know that in Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we are righteous and blameless in your sight. 
Thank you for declaring us righteous by his merits, and now, by your Spirit, make us more righteous each and every day. We pray these things not because we're worthy, but because we're needy. And we ask these things in confidence, coming before you always in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. At this point in our service, we have the opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord who's given so generously to us. And the collection today is for the ministry of mercy to those who are in need. After the collection, we'll sing in Christ alone the remaining two stanzas.
sisters, receive God's blessing and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.